0: Chapters forty and forty-one of Phineas Finn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Phineas Finn by Anthony Trollope. Chapter forty. Madame Max Goesler. Day after day and clause after clause, the bill was fought in committee and few men fought with more constancy on the side of the ministers than did the member for Loughton. Troubled though he was by his quarrel with Lord Chiltern, by his love for Violet Effingham, by the silence of his friend Lady Laura, for since he had told her of the duel she had become silent to him, never writing to him and hardly speaking to him when she met him in society. Nevertheless, Phineas was not so troubled but what he could work at his vocation. Now, when he would find himself upon his legs in the house, he would wonder at the hesitation which had lately troubled him so sorely. He would sit sometimes and speculate upon that dimness of eye, upon that tendency of things to go round, upon that obtrusive palpitation of heart, which had afflicted him so seriously, for so long a time. The house now was no more to him than any other chamber, and the members no more than other men. He guarded himself from orations, speaking always very shortly, because he believed that policy and good judgment required that he should be short. But words were very easy to him, and he would feel as though he could talk for ever and there quickly came to him a reputation for practical usefulness. He was a man with strong opinions, who could yet be submissive. And no man seemed to know how his reputation had come. He had made one good speech after two or three failures. All who knew him, his whole party, had been aware of his failure, and his one good speech had been regarded by many as no very wonderful effort but he was a man who was pleasant to other men, not combative, not self-asserting beyond the point at which self-assertion ceases to be a necessity of manliness. Nature had been very good to him, making him comely inside and out, and with this comeliness he had crept into popularity. The secret of the duel was, I think, at this time, known to a great many men and women, So Phineas perceived, but it was not, he thought, known either to Lord Brentford or to Violet Effingham. And in this he was right. No rumour of it had yet reached the ears of either of these persons, and rumour, though she flies so fast and so far, is often slow in reaching those ears which would be most interested in her tidings. Some dim report of the duel reached even Mr. Kennedy. "'and he asked his wife. "'Who told you?' said she, sharply. "'Bonteen told me that it was certainly so. "'Mr. Bonteen always knows more than anybody else "'about everything except his own business.' "'Then it is not true?' "'Lady Laura paused, and then she lied. "'Of course it is not true. "'I should be very sorry to ask either of them.' "'But to me it seems to be the most improbable thing in life.' Then Mr. Kennedy believed that there had been no duel. In his wife's word he put absolute faith, and he thought that she would certainly know anything that her brother had done. As he was a man given to but little discourse, he asked no further questions about the duel, either in the house or at the clubs. At first Phineas had been greatly dismayed, when men had asked him questions, tending to elicit from him some explanation of the mystery. But by degrees he became used to it, and as the tidings which had got abroad did not seem to injure him, and as the questionings were not pushed very closely, he became indifferent. There came out another article in the People's Banner, in which Lord C-N, and mr p s f n were spoken of as glaring examples of that aristocratic snobility that was the expressive word coined evidently with great delight for the occasion which the rotten state of london society in high quarters now produced here was a young lord infamously notorious quarrelling with one of his boon companions whom he had appointed to a private seat in the House of Commons, fighting duels, breaking the laws, scandalizing the public. And all this was done without punishment to the guilty. There were old stories afloat, so said the article, of what in a former century had been done by Lord Mohuns and Mr. Best's. But now, in 1860 blank, etc., 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 And so the article went on. Any reader may fill in without difficulty the concluding indignation and virtuous appeal for reform in social morals as well as Parliament. But Phineas had so far progressed that he had almost come to like this kind of thing. Certainly I think that the duel did him no harm in society. Otherwise he would hardly have been asked to a semi-political dinner at Lady Glencora Palliser's, even though he might have been invited to make one of the five hundred guests, who were crowded into her saloons and staircases after the dinner was over. To have been one of the five hundred was nothing. But to be one of the sixteen was a great deal. Was indeed so much that Phineas— not understanding as yet the advantage of his own comeliness, was at a loss to conceive why so pleasant an honour was conferred upon him. There was no man among the eight men at the dinner-party not in Parliament, and the only other except Phineas, not attached to the government, was Mr. Palliser's great friend, John Gray, the member for Silverbridge. There were four cabinet ministers in the room, the Duke, Lord Cantrip, Mr. Gresham, and the owner of the mansion. There was also Barrington Earl and young Lord Fawn, an under-secretary of state. But the wit and grace of the ladies present lent more of character to the party than even the position of the men. Lady Glencora Palliser herself was a host. There was no woman then in London better able to talk to a dozen people on a dozen subjects, and then, moreover, she was still in the flush of her beauty and the bloom of her youth. Lady Laura was there, by what means divided from her husband Phineas could not imagine, but Lady Glencora was good at such divisions. Lady Cantrip had been allowed to come with her lord, but as was well understood, "'Lord Cantrip was not so manifestly a husband as was Mr. Kennedy. "'There are men who cannot guard themselves from the assertion of marital rights "'at most inappropriate moments. "'Now Lord Cantrip lived with his wife most happily. "'Yet you should pass hours with him and her together, "'and hardly know that they knew each other. "'One of the Duke's daughters was there, but not the Duchess,' who was known to be heavy. And there was the beauteous Marchioness of Hartletop. Violet Effingham was in the room also, giving Phineas a blow at the heart as he saw her smile. Might it be that he could speak a word to her on this occasion? Mr. Gray had also brought his wife. And then there was Madame Max Goesler. Phineas found that it was his fortune to take down to dinner not Violet Effingham, but Madame Max Goesler, and, when he was placed at dinner, on the other side of him there sat Lady Hartletop, who addressed the few words which she spoke exclusively to Mr. Palliser. There had been in former days matters difficult of arrangement between those two, but I think that those old passages had now been forgotten by them both, Phineas was, therefore, driven to depend exclusively on Madame Max Goesler for conversation, and he found that he was not called upon to cast his seed into barren ground. Up to that moment he had never heard of Madame Max Goesler. Lady Glencora, in introducing them, had pronounced the lady's name so clearly that he had caught it with accuracy but he could not surmise whence she had come, or why she was there. She was a woman probably something over thirty years of age. She had thick black hair, which she wore in curls, unlike anybody else in the world, in curls which hung down low beneath her face, covering, and perhaps intended to cover, a certain thinness in her cheeks, which would otherwise have taken something from the charm of her countenance. Her eyes were large, of a dark blue colour, and very bright, and she used them in a manner which is as yet hardly common with English women. She seemed to intend that you should know that she employed them to conquer you, looking as a knight may have looked in olden days, who entered a chamber with his sword drawn from the scabbard and in his hand. Her forehead was broad and somewhat low. Her nose was not classically beautiful, being broader at the nostrils than beauty required, and, moreover, not perfectly straight in its line. Her lips were thin. Her teeth, which she endeavoured to show as little as possible, were perfect in form and colour. They who criticised her severely said, however, that they were too large. Her chin was well formed, and divided by a dimple, which gave to her face a softness of grace, which would otherwise have been much missed. But perhaps her great beauty was in the brilliant clearness of her dark complexion. You might almost fancy that you could see into it, so as to read the different lines beneath the skin. She was somewhat tall, though by no means tall to a fault, and was so thin as to be almost meagre in her proportions. She always wore her dress close up to her neck, and never showed the bareness of her arms. Though she was the only woman so clad now present in the room, this singularity did not specially strike one, because in other respects her apparel was so rich and quaint as to make inattention to it impossible. THE OBSERVER, WHO DID NOT OBSERVE VERY CLOSELY, WOULD PERCEIVE THAT Madame MAX Goesler's DRESS WAS UNLIKE THE DRESS OF OTHER WOMEN. BUT, SEEING THAT IT WAS UNLIKE IN MAKE, UNLIKE IN COLOR, AND UNLIKE IN MATERIAL, THE ORDINARY OBSERVER WOULD NOT SEE ALSO THAT IT WAS UNLIKE IN FORM FOR ANY OTHER PURPOSE THAN THAT OF MAINTAINING ITS GENERAL PECULIARITY OF CHARACTER. In color she was abundant, and yet the fabric of her garment was always black. My pen may not dare to describe the traceries of yellow and ruby silk, which went in and out through the black lace, across her bosom, and round her neck, and over her shoulders, and along her arms, and down to the very ground at her feet, robbing the black stuff of all its somber solemnity, and producing a brightness in which there was nothing gaudy. She wore no vestige of crinoline, and hardly anything that could be called a train. And the lace sleeves of her dress, with their bright traceries of silk, were fitted close to her arms, and round her neck she wore the smallest possible collar of lace, above which there was a short chain of Roman gold, with a ruby pendant and she had rubies in her ears, and a ruby brooch, and rubies in the bracelets on her arms. Such as regarded the outward woman was Madame Max Goesler, and Phineas, as he took his place by her side, thought that fortune for the nonce had done well with him, only that he should have liked it so much better could he have been seated next to Violet Effingham, I HAVE SAID THAT IN THE MATTER OF CONVERSATION HIS MORSEL OF SEED WAS NOT THROWN INTO barren GROUND. I DO NOT KNOW THAT HE CAN TRULY BE SAID TO HAVE PRODUCED EVEN A MORSEL. THE SUBJECTS WERE ALL MOOTED BY THE LADY, AND SO GREAT WAS HER FERTILITY IN DISCOURSING THAT ALL CONVERSATIONAL GRASSES SEEMED TO GROW WITH HER SPONTANEOUSLY. MR. FINN, SHE SAID, What would I not give to be a member of the British Parliament at such a moment as this? Why at such a moment as this, particularly? Because there is something to be done, which, let me tell you, Senator, though you are, is not always the case with you. My experience is short, but it sometimes seems to me that there is too much to be done. Too much of nothingness, Mr. Finn, is not that the case, but now there is a real fight in the lists. The one great drawback to the life of women is that they cannot act in politics and which side would you take what here in England said Madame Max Goesler, from which expression, and from one or two others of a similar nature. Phineas was led into a doubt whether the lady were a countrywoman of his or not. Indeed, it is hard to say. Politically I should want to out Turnbull, Mr. Turnbull, to vote for everything that could be voted for. Ballot, manhood suffrage, womanhood suffrage, unlimited right of striking, tenant right, education of everybody, annual parliaments, and the abolition of at least the bench of bishops. That is a strong program, said Phineas. It is strong, Mr. Finn, but that's what I should like. I think, however, that I should be tempted to feel a dastard security in the conviction that I might advocate my views without any danger of seeing them carried out. For, to tell you the truth, I don't at all want to put down ladies and gentlemen. You think that they would go with the bench of bishops? I don't want anything to go, that is, as far as real life is concerned. There's that dear good Bishop of Abingdon is the best friend I have in the world, and as for the Bishop of Dorchester, I'd walk from here to there to hear him preach. And I'd sooner hem aprons for them all myself— than that they should want those pretty decorations. But then, Mr. Finn, there is such a difference between life and theory, is there not? "'And it is so comfortable to have theories that one is not bound to carry out,' said Phineas. "'Isn't it? Mr. Palliser, do you live up to your political theories?' At this moment Mr. Palliser was sitting perfectly silent between Lady Hartletop and the Duke's daughter, and he gave a little spring in his chair as this sudden address was made to him. "'Your House of Commons theories, I mean, Mr. Palliser. Mr. Finn is saying that it is very well to have far advanced ideas. It does not matter how far advanced, because one is never called upon to act upon them practically.' "'That is a dangerous doctrine, I think,' said Mr. Palliser. "'But pleasant, so at least Mr. Finn says.' "'It is at least very common,' said Phineas, "'not caring to protect himself by a contradiction.' "'For myself,' said Mr. Palliser gravely, "'I think I may say that I always am really anxious to carry into practice— all those doctrines of policy which I advocate in theory. During this conversation Lady Hartletop sat as though no word of it reached her ears. She did not understand Madame Max Goesler, and by no means loved her. Mr. Palliser, when he had made his little speech, turned to the Duke's daughter, and asked some question about the conservatories at Longroyston. "'I have called forth a word of wisdom,' said Madame Max Goesler, almost in a whisper. "'Yes,' said Phineas, and taught a cabinet minister to believe that I am a most unsound politician. "'You may have ruined my prospects for life, Madame Max Goesler. "'Let me hope not. As far as I can understand the way of things in your government,' the aspirants to office succeed chiefly by making themselves uncommonly unpleasant to those who are in power. If a man can hit hard enough he is sure to be taken into the Elysium of the treasury bench, not that he may hit others, but that he may cease to hit those who are there. I don't think men are chosen because they are useful. You are very severe upon us all. Indeed, as far as I can see, one man is as useful as another. But to put aside joking, they tell me that you are sure to become a minister. Phineas felt that he blushed. Could it be that people said of him, behind his back, that he was a man likely to rise high in political position? Your informants are very kind, he replied awkwardly but I do not know who they are. I shall never get up in the way you describe, that is, by abusing the men I support." After that Madame Max Goesler turned round to Mr. Gray, who was sitting on the other side of her, and Phineas was left for a moment in silence. He tried to say a word to Lady Hartletop, but Lady Hartletop only bowed her head gracefully in recognition of the truth of the statement he made. So he applied himself for a while to his dinner. "'What do you think of Miss Effingham?' said Madame Max Goesler, again addressing him suddenly. "'What do I think about her?' "'You know her, I suppose?' "'Oh, yes, I know her. She is closely connected with the Kennedys, who are friends of mine.' "'So I have heard.' "'They tell me that scores of men are raving about her. "'Are you one of them?' "'Oh, yes. "'I don't mind being one of sundry scores. "'There is nothing particular in owning to that.' "'But you admire her?' "'Of course I do,' said Phineas. "'Ah, I see you are joking. "'I do, amazingly. "'They say women never do admire women. "'But I most sincerely do admire Miss Effingham.' "'Is she a friend of yours?' "'Oh, no, I must not dare to say so much as that. I was with her last winter for a week at matching, and of course I meet her about at people's houses. She seems to me to be the most independent girl I ever knew in my life. I do believe that nothing would make her marry a man unless she loved him and honoured him, and I think it is so very seldom that you can say that of a girl.' "'I believe so also,' said Phineas. "'Then he paused a moment before he continued to speak. "'I cannot say that I know Miss Effingham very intimately, "'but from what I have seen of her, "'I should think it very probable that she may not marry at all.' "'Very probably,' said Madame Max Goesler, "'who then again turned away to Mr. Gray. Ten minutes after this,' when the moment was just at hand in which the ladies were to retreat, Madame Max Goesler again addressed Phineas, looking very full into his face as she did so. "'I wonder whether the time will ever come, Mr. Finn, in which you will give me an account of that day's journey to Blankenberg?' "'To Blankenberg?' "'Yes, to Blankenberg. I am not asking for it now. But I shall look for it some day.' Then Lady Glencora rose from her seat, and Madame Max Goesler went out with the others. End of chapter 40 Chapter 41 Lord Fawn What had Madame Max Goesler to do with his journey to Blankenberg, thought Phineas, as he sat for a while in silence between Mr. Palliser and Mr. Gray? And why should she, who was a perfect stranger to him, have dared to ask him such a question? But as the conversation round the table, after the ladies had gone, soon drifted into politics and became general, Phineas for a while forgot Madame Max Goesler and the Blankenberg journey, and listened to the eager words of cabinet ministers, now and again uttering a word of his own, and showing that he too was as eager as others.' but the session in mr palliser's dining-room was not long and phineas soon found himself making his way amidst a throng of coming guests into the rooms above his object was to meet violet effingham but failing that he would not be unwilling to say a few more words to madame max goesler he first encountered lady laura to whom he had not spoken as yet and finding himself standing close to her for a while he asked her after his late neighbour. "'Do tell me one thing, Lady Laura. Who is Madame Max Goesler, And why have I never met her before?' "'That will be two things, Mr. Finn. But I will answer both questions as well as I can. You have not met her before, because she was in Germany last spring and summer, and in the year before that you were not about so much as you have been since.' Still, you must have seen her, I think. She is the widow of an Austrian banker, and has lived the greater part of her life at Vienna. She is very rich, and has a small house in Park Lane, where she receives people so exclusively, that it has come to be thought an honour to be invited by Madame Max Goesle. Her enemies say that her father was a German Jew, living in England, in the employment of the Viennese bankers and they say also that she has been married a second time to an Austrian count, to whom she allows ever so much a year to stay away from her. But of all this nobody, I fancy, knows anything. What they do know is that Madame Max Goesler spends seven or eight thousand a year, and that she will give no man an opportunity of even asking her to marry him. People used to be shy of her. "'but she goes almost everywhere now. "'She has not been at Portman Square. "'Oh, no, but then Lady Glencora is so much more advanced than we are. "'After all, we are but humdrum people as the world goes now.' "'Then Phineas began to roam about the rooms, "'striving to find an opportunity of engrossing five minutes of Miss Effingham's attention.' During the time that Lady Laura was giving him the history of Madame Max Goesler, his eyes had wandered round, and he had perceived that Violet was standing in the further corner of a large lobby, on to which the stairs opened. So situated, indeed, that she could hardly escape, because of the increasing crowd, but on that very account almost impossible to be reached. He could see, also, that she was talking to Lord Fawn, an unmarried peer of something over thirty years of age, with an unrivaled pair of whiskers, a small estate, and a rising political reputation. Lord Fawn had been talking to Violet through the whole dinner, and Phineas was beginning to think that he should like to make another journey to Blankenberg, with the object of meeting his lordship on the sands. When Lady Laura had done speaking, His eyes were turned through a large open doorway, towards the spot on which his idol was standing. "'It is of no use, my friend,' she said, touching his arm. "'I wish I could make you know that it is of no use, because then I think you would be happier.' To this Phineas made no answer, but went and roamed about the rooms. "'Why should it be of no use?' Would Violet Effingham marry any man merely because he was a lord? Some half-hour after this he had succeeded in making his way up to the place in which Violet was still standing, with Lord Fawn, beside her. "'I have been making such a struggle to get to you,' he said. "'And now you are here, you will have to stay, for it is impossible to get out,' she answered. "'Lord Fawn has made the attempt half a dozen times.' but has failed grievously. "'I have been quite contented,' said Lord Fawn. "'More than contented.' Phineas felt that he ought to give some special reason to Miss Effingham to account for his efforts to reach her. But yet he had nothing special to say. Had Lord Fawn not been there, he would immediately have told her that he was waiting for an answer to the question he had asked her in Salisbury Park but he could hardly do this in presence of the noble under-secretary of state. She received him with her pleasant genial smile, looking exactly as she had looked when he had parted from her on the morning after their ride. She did not show any sign of anger, or even of indifference at his approach. But still it was almost necessary that he should account for his search of her. "'I have so longed to hear from you how you got on at Lulinter," he said. "'Yes, yes. And I will tell you something of it some day, perhaps. Why do you not come to Lady Baldock's?' "'I did not even know that Lady Baldock was in town.' "'You ought to have known. Of course she is in town. Where did you suppose I was living?' "'Lord Fawn was there yesterday, and can tell you that my aunt is quite blooming.' "'Lady Baldock is blooming,' said Lord Fawn. "'Certainly blooming, that is, if evergreens may be said to bloom.' "'Evergreens do bloom, as well as spring plants, Lord Fawn. "'You come and see her, Mr. Finn. "'Only you must bring a little money with you "'for the Female Protestant Unmarried Women's Emigration Society.' "'That is my aunt's present hobby, as Lord Fawn knows, to his cost. "'I wish I may never spend half a sovereign worse. "'But it is a perilous affair for me, as my aunt wants me to go out, "'as a sort of leading Protestant unmarried female emigrant pioneer myself.' "'You don't mean that,' said Lord Fawn, with much anxiety. "'Of course you'll go,' said Phineas.' "'I should, if I were you.' "'I am in doubt,' said Violet. "'It is such a grand prospect,' said he. "'Such an opening in life. "'So much excitement, you know. "'And such a useful career.' "'As if there were not plenty of opening here for Miss Effingham,' said Lord Fawn, "'and plenty of excitement.' "'Do you think there is?' said Violet. "'You are much more civil than Mr. Finn, I must say.' Then Phineas began to hope that he need not be afraid of Lord Fawn. "'What a happy man you were at dinner!' continued Violet, addressing herself to Phineas. "'I thought Lord Fawn was the happy man. "'You had Madame Max Goesler all to yourself for nearly two hours, "'and I suppose there was not a creature in the room who did not envy you.' I don't doubt that ever so much interest was made with Lady Glencora as to taking Madame Max down to dinner. Lord Fawn, I know, intrigued.--Miss Effingham, really I must contradict you. And Barrington Earl begged for it as a particular favour. The Duke, with a sigh, owned that it was impossible because of his cumbrous rank, and Mr. Gresham, when it was offered to him, declared that he was fatigued with the business of the house, and not up to the occasion. How much did she say to you, and what did she talk about? The ballot, chiefly, that and manhood suffrage. Ah! She said something more than that, I am sure. Madame Max Goesler never lets any man go without entrancing him. If you have anything near your heart, Mr. Finn, Madame Max Goesler touched it, I am sure.' Now Phineas had two things near his heart—political promotion, and Violet Effingham, and Madame Max Goesler had managed to touch them both. She had asked him respecting his journey to Blankenberg, and had touched him very nearly in reference to Miss Effingham. "'You know Madame Max Goesler, of course,' said Violet to Lord Fawn. Oh, yes, I know the lady, that is, as well as other people do. No one, I take it, knows much of her, and it seems to me that the world is becoming tired of her. A mystery is good for nothing if it remains always a mystery. And it is good for nothing at all when it is found out, said Violet. And therefore it is that Madame Max Goesler is a bore, said Lord Fawn. "'You did not find her a bore," said Violet. Then Phineas, choosing to oppose Lord Fawn as well as he could on that matter, as on every other, declared that he had found Madame Max Goesler most delightful. "'And beautiful, is she not?' said Violet. "'Beautiful!' exclaimed Lord Fawn. "'I think her very beautiful,' said Phineas. "'So do I,' said Violet and she is a dear ally of mine. We were a week together last winter, and swore an undying friendship. She told me ever so much about Mr. goesler "'But she told you nothing of her second husband,' said Lord Fawn. "'Now that you have run into scandal I shall have done,' said Violet. Half an hour after this, when Phineas was preparing to fight his way out of the house, he was again close to Madame Max Goesler. He had not found a single moment in which to ask Violet for an answer to his old question, and was retiring from the field discomfited, but not dispirited. Lord Fawn, he thought, was not a serious obstacle in his way. Lady Laura had told him that there was no hope for him, but then Lady Laura's mind on that subject was, he thought, prejudiced. Violet Effingham certainly knew what were his wishes, and knowing them, smiled on him and was gracious to him. Would she do so, if his pretensions were thoroughly objectionable to her? "'I saw that you were successful this evening,' said Madame Max Goesler to him. "'I was not aware of any success. "'I call it great success to be able to make your way where you will, through such a crowd as there is here.' You seem to me to be so stout a cavalier that I shall ask you to find my servant, and bid him get my carriage. Will you mind? Phineas, of course, declared that he would be delighted. He is a German, and not in livery. But if somebody will call out, he will hear. He is very sharp, and much more attentive, than your English footman. An Englishman hardly ever makes a good servant." "'Is that a compliment to us Britons?' "'No, certainly not. "'If a man is a servant, he should be clever enough to be a good one.' Phineas had now given the order for the carriage, and, having returned, was standing with Madame Max Goesler in the cloak-room. "'After all, we are surely the most awkward people in the world,' she said. "'You know Lord Fawn, who was talking to Miss Effingham just now?' You should have heard him trying to pay me a compliment before dinner. It was like a donkey walking a minuet, and yet they say he is a clever man and can make speeches. Could it be possible that Madame Max Goesler's ears were so sharp that she had heard the things which Lord Fawn had said of her? He is a well-informed man, said Phineas. For a lord, you mean— "'said Madame Max Goesler, "'But he is an oaf, is he not? "'And yet they say he is to marry that girl.' "'I do not think he will,' said Phineas, stoutly. "'I hope not, with all my heart. "'And I hope that somebody else may, "'unless somebody else should change his mind. "'Thank you. "'I am so much obliged to you. "'Mind you come and call on me.' One nine three, Park Lane. I dare say you know the little cottage. Then he put Madame Max Goesler into her carriage and walked away to his club. End of chapter forty one. Recording by Laura Coskinen.